Please rise for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarding others as contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be be Randy, thank you so much for reading our lesson and to Laura and Casey for leading us, praying for us, uh, to all of our musicians and all of you in person who are with us and uh, all of those who are streaming with us. Again, we welcome you and it's a great joy to be in worship with you. Uh, if you have been with us the last six weeks, you know that we're now in our seventh week of this series called Teach Us to Pray. We're thinking together about the prayer life of Jesus with another reading, which Randy read for us from Luke 18. If you were here last week, you know that we read the first eight verses of Luke 18 because that chapter has back-to-back parables on the issue of prayer. And we studied the first story last week. It's the story of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Just as a reminder, there was a widow who pled her case to a magistrate who neither feared God nor cared for people. And though for a time the judge denied this poor woman justice, she kept coming, she kept coming, she kept coming. And of course, eventually the judge ruled in her favor, but not because he cared but because of her persistence, because she was tenacious. And so the moral to that parable, as Jesus tells it, is simply this. If an unwise, unjust, uncaring judge will give way, cave in to the protest of a pesky widow, then how much more will our heavenly Father grant justice to the earnest cries of his beloved children. And the last part of that is a question. Will Jesus, when he returns, find faith on the earth in you and in me? We also noted last week how often, and this is just so Luke, how often Luke telegraphs the purpose of Jesus' teaching before he recites the parable that Jesus taught. In other words, what Luke does, he's a master at it. He gives us the context of Jesus' teaching to help us understand the content of what Jesus is saying. So, in the story of the widow, it begins like this. 
Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray, not sometimes, but always, and never to give up. And so in that parable, Luke kind of telegraphs the fact that the context of Jesus telling this story is one of discouragement, and the message is to keep praying. Whatever happens or doesn't happen, there is a correlation between persistent, disciplined prayer and enduring faith. Luke does this again. He telegraphs in chapter 15, which is the most famous chapter in Luke's gospel. It contains the parable of the prodigal son. And before Jesus tells that parable, he begin, Luke begins like this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this guy welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now it's one thing for a rabbi to tolerate sinners, but to welcome them? So against this backdrop of religious belly aching, Jesus tells a trilogy of stories, three stories, all about lost things, lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son. And the moral to these stories is the deep joy of finding something or someone that is lost. In fact, in chapter 15, Jesus goes so far as to say in verse 7, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so Luke is telegraphing the context. The context is always critical. I heard it said recently that separate text from context and all you've got is con. And there's a lot of conning going on in the world. And so the why of the story is just as important as the what of the story. And here again, the same thing happens. In Luke 18, verse 9, the text, Luke telegraphs the why of this parable on prayer. Verse 9. Now, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in their own righteousness and regarded others with contempt. And then the story. Here it is. The way Jesus tells this parable, the scene is a prayer meeting. Two men go to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. We know in first century Judaism that at the temple there were three specific times a day reserved for prayer, nine in the morning, 12 noon, three o'clock in the afternoon. So apparently during one of those prayer times, these two men came to church to intercede, to pray. And what's interesting is these two couldn't be more different from each other. They are night and day opposition. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax agent. Let me explain the difference. In the New Testament period, there were essentially three main philosophies of Judaism, three sects of Judaism, if you will, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. The Pharisees were the largest of these three groups, and they had by far the most influence and most power. They were known in the community for their accurate and authoritative interpretation of Jewish law. 
They also had their own traditions and ways of life to which they were devoted and faithful. The Pharisees, by and large, were respected by the people and they functioned to some degree as kind of a social and political force against foreign and Hellenized Jewish leaders. Hellenization, those who were sympathetic to the predominant Greek culture. Now, what you know, if you've read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that in the gospels, the Pharisees are normally portrayed as opponents to Jesus. In fact, Luke in particular views some of the Pharisees as being overzealous observers of the law, especially pertaining to ritual purity, food regulations, and Sabbath observance. They were often at odds with Jesus during his ministry, and they consistently objected to his teaching, and many times tried to trap him in some kind of theological spat. That's the Pharisees. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were legitimately despised, I think, by the Jews because they worked for the Roman government, the occupation. They collected revenue for the state and they were permitted by the empire to increase the percentage they collected in order to make a profit for themselves. And there was no regulation placed on the percentage, which of course opened the door for fraud and corruption. A tax collector's occupation itself kept these people in touch, constant contact with Gentiles, which for a Jew renders him unclean. And so this is why you see often in the Synoptic Gospels, sinners and tax collectors were often lumped together as undesirables, deplorables, people from whom you should disassociate rather than affiliate. And so all that to say, I don't know if it's just me or not, but it's a little bit curious, isn't it, to see a Pharisee and a tax collector in the same prayer meeting. You can imagine the feathers are going to get ruffled. In this scene, similar to last week, Luke gives us an insider's look, a window into the hearts and minds of these two men. In other words, we're made privy to their prayers. First, the Pharisee. I love the way the King James Version says it. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And this is what he said, something like this. Lord, you sure are lucky to have me. (laughs) I wish everybody could be like me. God, I just want to thank you that I'm not like other people thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. It's interesting, he uses the personal pronoun in his prayer, I, four times, and it sounds to me like maybe he's not praying as much as he's boasting. What's interesting about this man's prayer is that he never asks God for anything. In fact, by the sound of the prayer, it sounds like, at least to him, that God needs him more than he needs God. And most troubling of all, to me, is the contempt in his prayer 
for the tax man. He prays with contempt. What a horrible word. I looked it up the other day in the Greek. It's exotheo. It means to despise someone or to ignore. Mr. Webster defines the word contempt as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath us. Schopenhauer said it like that, this, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another person who is deserving of our scorn. Samuel Johnson said contempt, I love this, contempt is a kind of gangrene which if it seizes one part of your character, it corrupts all the rest one degree after another. There's a book out by Arthur Brooks called Love Your Enemies. It's about the polarization in our culture. I, I love not just the title, but I love the subtitle, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. That's an interesting title, isn't it? In the book, Dr. Brooks says this, we don't have an anger problem in American politics, we have a contempt problem. If you listen to how people talk to each other in political life today, you notice it is pure contempt. And the truth is, when somebody treats you with contempt, it's very difficult to forget it. So, says Brooks, if we want to solve the problem of polarization, you have to begin by solving the problem of contempt. And the Pharisee looked upon the tax collector with contempt. Dr. King once said, you can have no influence over those for whom you have underlying contempt. And a big amen to that. But in this prayer meeting, watch this, when contempt becomes a part of this holy man's piety, he can justify his scorn for the other in the name of God and get some amens from his colleagues. When I read this story, I recognize that maybe the larger problem in this Pharisee is not in his assessment of the tax collector as a sinner. You bet you he was a sinner. But the bigger issue for the Pharisee is in his assessment of himself. For some reason, this guy thinks that he himself is without sin and doesn't need mercy. And so I'm not one to judge either anybody's prayers, but watch, in this prayer, there's no confession, there's no repentance, there's no remorse, and there's not a stitch of humility. Lord, you sure are lucky. Now I want to give you a word of caution at this point, because I know what you're thinking. It is so important for us in reading this story that we not stereotype Pharisees, all Pharisees. Remember the preface to the story? Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in their own righteousness and regarded others with contempt. Not all Pharisees, but some. We have a bad habit 
obviously, of labeling people in groups. I do. We label people sometimes so that we can disengage from them. So we say all Jews, all Pharisees, or when I was growing up, it was all Catholics or all Church of Christ. We sometimes just sort of stereotype with the best image of ourselves compared with the worst image of somebody else. So all Palestinians, all Muslims, all Methodists, all whites, all blacks, all Republicans, all Democrats, all liberals, all, con- all police. I had the same feeling last week when I watched that video of two deputies gunned down sitting in their patrol car in Los Angeles. I had the same feeling as I did when I saw George Floyd pinned to the ground, not breathing, just nauseous because of contempt, sick to the heart. And I realized that all violence is a hate crime. Injustice is injustice in whatever form it happens. And I thought of Martin Luther King again, who said, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. So I need to be careful about labeling. We need to be careful about stereotyping because when we do that, it always leads to the same place, contempt. But then I want you to notice the tax collector's prayer. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast. What does that mean? That's a sign of repentance. He won't look up. Usually the Jews look up when they pray. He won't look up embarrassed of his own sin, repenting, beating the breast, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now that's a prayer. I will always remember preaching one Sunday, four or five years ago, we were doing a series on the Lord's Prayer, and we were preaching on the Lord's Prayer, and we were singing a hymn. I had invited people to join the church, and before the benediction, and there was a woman about midway back on the aisle, and as we were singing, she would step out and start to come, and then she would walk back to her pew. She'd step out and start to come. I got tired of her indecision, and so I just went. And she came running down the aisle, and she threw her arms around me, and she said, I want you to pray that prayer with me. And we did. That's a prayer. Have mercy on me. And Jesus concludes this passage by saying this. Do you know who went home justified, made right with God that day? Here's the Luke reversal. It wasn't the Pharisee. (laughs) It was the tax man. And then he puts it in perspective Because anybody who exalts himself, herself, you're going to be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be lifted up. One other word of caution at this point. 
Be careful as we complete this study. If your response to this story is, well, at least I'm not like the self-righteous Pharisee, you've missed the point. In fact, in saying that, you have become the Pharisee. Prayer is not about comparing myself to others. It's not about separating ourselves from sinners. In fact, I'm convinced that the Pharisee did not go home right with God because he distanced himself from the tax collector. When I separate myself from others that I deem unworthy, I separate myself from God. I heard a knock one night at my door. I opened to see the ragged, the sore. I said, if I let him in, others will come in rags and sin. And as I shut the door, I heard him shout, you haven't locked yourself in. You've locked yourself out. When I distance myself and have contempt on someone that I deem unworthy, I have separated myself from God. And when we draw near to others, we draw near to God. The biggest problem with this man and with this man is self-justification. We are masters. Self-justification is an abomination before God. It is the enemy of repentance. In fact, I remember Carol Tavris, who teaches social psychology at UCLA, once said it like this. Listen to this. Most people, when directly confronted by evidence that they are wrong, do not change their point of view or course of action but justify it even more tenaciously. Even, she says, irrefutable evidence is rarely enough, listen, to pierce the mental armor of self-justification. That's my problem. And maybe it's yours. But here's the deal. You can't make yourself right with God but then you don't have to because God through Christ has already done it. And when we repent of our sins and confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are made right with God. You are justified. That is just as if I had never sinned. Jesus made a shocking statement to some Pharisees one day that got him in a heap of trouble. He said, listen to this, this is hard to hear. Truly, he said, I tell you, even the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. And I think there's no wonder that got him nailed. You can't run the church like that. What's he doing? It sounds like he's condoning sin. No. But he's saying that sometimes you find more openness to the gospel in the street than you do in the synagogue. Sometimes you find more response in the highways and byways than you do in the church. The sinners and tax collectors were responding while the religious elders were fussing. The prayer that gets through is not the prayer of contempt. 
It's the prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, sinner. Repentance. Surrender. It's not self-justification. It's self-emptying. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles herself will be exalted. Benjamin Franklin, last word. Benjamin Franklin vividly recalled in his notes a visit he made as a young man to see a Puritan preacher whose name was Cotton Mather. Ben Franklin writes in his journal a life lesson he learned from Reverend Cotton Mather. Says Ben, the pastor was showing me out of his house one day after a visit and there was a very low beam near the doorway. I was still talking when Mather began shouting, stoop, stoop. I didn't know what he meant and suddenly I banged my head on the beam to which the pastor turned to me and said, Ben, you're young and you have the world before you. But I want to advise you, as you go through it, stoop. And you will avoid a lot of bumps on your journey. Ben said, I've never forgot it. It was useful to me all of my life, and I have avoided some of the worst misfortunes of pride by not carrying my head too high. The brother of Jesus in James 4.10 said it like this, humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will lift you up and you'll be able to lift others up too so that maybe, just maybe, you might be an answer to somebody else's prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.